0: My name is Talia Smith, and you're listening to Season 2 of Once Upon a Time, a Storytelling Podcast. This season, my friends and I will be telling stories that will leave you spooked, uneasy, or even on the edge. Join us for Once Upon a Time, a Storytelling Podcast, Season 2. This episode was recorded in New York and Maryland, and it shows what can happen when you take out an accident insurance policy. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have a wonderful guest, Jess Hi. (laughs) Jess works at a nonprofit in Manhattan where she is able to do online programs for seniors and work on different education initiatives. Outside of her full-time job, Jess created a mixed-media and photography Etsy shop, and she does freelance photography. She's also our featured artist for this week, so you'll be able to see her work featured on our Instagram. In her free time, you can see Jess before the pandemic in New York City museums and gallery spaces, but since the pandemic, she has been hiking and escaped the real world through reading, collecting vinyls, old cameras, and obviously watching some noir films. Say hi Jess.
1: Hi Jess. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. It's so wonderful to be here.
0: (laughs) It's so wonderful to have you. So before we get into this story I think it's kind of fun to say that we chose this topic because back in the good old college days we took a class on um monster movies gangster movies and noir movies so without further ado what are we talking about today jess
1: so we're going to be talking about the 1944 psychological thriller film noir film uh double indemnity
0: (laughs) so can you please give me three fun facts about the story you'll be sharing today
1: Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, So (laughs) Double Indemnity was actually based off of a true story. Uh, No one wanted to play the leading role of Walter Neff, who is the insurance uh, agent within the film, insurance salesman. Mm -hmm. And the third fact is Barbara Stanwyck was scared to play the role of Phyllis Dietrichson, who is the classic femme fatale figure within this movie.
0: We'll get into what some of these things mean a little <laughs> later on in the pod. So let's get into it. What is Double Indemnity? Let's introduce this topic.
1: Sure. So Double Indemnity was filmed in 1944. And it was directed by Billy Wilder and co written by Wilder and Raymond Chandler, and produced by Buddy De Silva and Joseph Sistrom. Um, it's kind of known that Chandler and Wilder didn't have a great relationship and ended up hating each other as the movie progressed with its filming. But it was a screenplay based off of James M. Cain's 1943 novella of the same name. And they had wanted to actually film this during the 1930s, but it wasn't really possible then because of production
0: codes. Ugh, the production code.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so... That was established by the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America in 1934. Um, basically, to it was a self-censorship of content, and it really limited the sort of content that you were able to put into a movie. And it wasn't until the 1940s that this was really allowed to be
0: filmed. So some of the things that were in the production code was movies couldn't be too violent, they had to watch their language... Like, couldn't it be saucy, for lack of a better term, like very, <laughs> very PG movies across the board. Absolutely,
1: and it also said that morally and ethically, that the content needs to be pure in a sense. And *Double Indemnity* kind of went against that code, and you'll see why later on. Oh yeah,
0: it didn't win any Academy Awards, right?
1: No, it didn't. So it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it didn't win any, but it really made history. And it's in the Library of Congress and is considered a really, really important movie. Um, It's actually ranked number 38 on the American Film Institute's list of 100 Best American Films of All Time. Um, And it was placed later on in 2007, number 29 on their anniversary list.
0: That's pretty good.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, pretty good.
0: If you're interested in noir at all, Double Indemnity is definitely one of those movies that you should watch and uh, learn more about the genre. But in addition to being a classic movie, literally considered a classic movie, it has a fascinating story that involves the act of telling a story, which is why I love it so much. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: I recently watched this at work, showing it to my clients, and I completely forgot about the movie. And it it sparked a love in me. And it really takes that idea of edge and thriller to a whole different level. And it sort of brings you back to that time where film noir was a brand new thing. And it was so innovative for what it was doing. And and, uh, cinematically, it was just an absolutely stunning piece and the way that the music intertwines with the film. Oh, yeah. It's just like chef's kiss. So good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Seriously. Oh, I, I, I can't wait to get into it. So without further ado, my dear friend Jess, will you start us off the telling of this tale with my favorite phrase, once upon a time? Once upon a time...
1: We're going back to 1938. Walter Neff is an insurance salesman. In the beginning, he's returning back to his office in downtown Los Angeles late one night. He was in pain from a gunshot wound to his shoulder, and he begins dictating a confession into a dictaphone for his friend and colleague, Mr. Barton Keyes, who's a claims adjuster. a
0: (laughs) A dictaphone for, first of all, hysterical. For those who don't know what that means, I would say it's kind of, if, if we were to make this in 2020, it'd be like talking into the notes of your phone, like voice recording yourself.
1: As all of this is going on, we see this really beautiful scene of just heavy shadowing with the blinds coming through with the office lights. And it just creates that automatic noir sense of what we would classify noir today He has a small little lamp near him that lights him up, and cinematically, it's just a really incredible feat to do that shot. (laughs) Uh, So he brings out this dictaphone, and he starts telling his story, which is mostly a flashback that begins earlier in May of the previous year.
0: So now we're starting in 1938, but we're going back, and he's going to tell the story about 1930. Thirty-seven.
1: Yeah, May of nineteen thirty-seven. Okay, he begins telling his story of meeting this alluring woman named Phyllis Dietrichson during a house call to remind her husband to renew his automobile insurance policy. They flirt a little bit, and he really. There's this one iconic line after he leaves her house, saying, "How could I have ever known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle?" And he really gets this feeling from her right off the bat of meeting her that there's something different about this woman, something mysterious, and it leads down a path of him sort of navigating this illicit affair that they
0: may have later on. Absolutely. What I noticed particularly, and definitely this is coming as a viewer in the 21st century, and I don't know if I would have caught on to this watching it at the time, but I'm like, Walter Neff is forward and if this was created today um hashtag me too they're like right how he talks yeah. how he speaks to her is like very like they're having a conversation and they're talking about insurance policies and he's like commenting on her ankles it's like super creepy <laughs> Yeah,
1: and that's something he's constantly going back to is that anklet of hers. And there's been different feminist writing later on and scholarly writing about that exact moment within the movie.
0: He's like a typical gross man. Ugh. <laughs> All right, so Walter Neff is at the home of Phyllis Dietrichson because he wants to talk to her husband about auto insurance, correct?
1: Absolutely.
0: But while he's there, they start talking about something else? Yeah, so it's kind
1: of them flirting back and forth. Later on in the movie, he goes back to visit because he couldn't get his mind off of Phyllis. And she brings up the question of accident insurance and what kinds of insurances uh, Mr. Neff sells to give him a little bit more business.
0: What do you think Walter Neff is thinking when Phyllis brings up the idea of the accident insurance?
1: I think he's thinking that she wants to kill her husband.
0: exactly she never actually says she wants to kill her husband no she doesn't say it outright but
1: their insinuations and their body language and other words spoken and dialogue spoken that suggest it um, But
0: but she never says it
1: no she does not
0: interesting all right so what happens next So he's going
1: back to the office and initially wants no part of this plan that she has, um, but eventually devises a plan to murder her husband and trigger the double indemnity clause, which would double the payout of her accident insurance claim. Um, So within that specific claim, if he were to die of accidentally on a train or things like that, instead of getting fifty thousand dollars, they would get a hundred thousand dollars.
0: So Neff was able to sell the accident insurance to her husband.
1: So not exactly. So he went a little bit later to basically sell him accident insurance, and Phyllis's stepdaughter Lola was sitting there, basically acting as a witness to this conversation for later purposes. Mr. Dietrichson was not about getting accident insurance and said he would think about it and it would be too costly at that, at that time. So he makes him sign a renewal for his auto insurance um, and make sure that it's double, doubly signed for that's doubly signed. What is that? (laughs) Make sure, (laughs) make sure that he signs duplicate copies of this, Auto insurance but it really was the life insurance policy one for the company and one for um walter neff and one for phyllis
0: so he bamboozled him into buying the accident insurance absolutely so that there's (laughs) some random woman could kill her husband even though she never actually said she wanted to kill her husband she was just flirting with walter neff
1: Yeah, there's kind of a monkey wrench thrown into their plan. So Mr. Dietrichson ends up getting hurt within his job, visiting a work site. They thought that this plan of him taking the train would be canceled.
0: Because the train would mean he would get double indemnity. He would get double the insurance if he died. Absolutely. Okay, so now they have to figure out how they're going to get him on to the train Without being suspicious, and how are they going to kill him on the train without being suspicious,
1: right? Exactly,
0: yes. How do they do that?
1: How do they get him onto the train? Walter Neff is, he's very meticulous in his actions, and you'll see this throughout the movie, too. He makes sure that he has an alibi within his apartment complex, just so that it places him within his apartment and then places card holders within his telephone and within the doorbell so that he would know if anybody were to visit. Um, and he gave very meticulous plans to Mrs. Dietrichsen in instructions, So he was really thinking it out and trying to make it as perfect as possible. Walter Neff ends up killing Mr. Dietrichsen in their own car. How does he do that? He unfortunately chokes him and then later poses as Mitch, Mr. Dietrichson in order to sort of make it believable that he, it was an accidental death and that he fell off the train.
0: So he impersonates Mr. Dietrichson, Phyllis's husband on the train and then jumps off. What I think is striking about this movie and connecting it to our Frankenstein a- episode, actually from earlier in this season We see, again, an obsession with the idea of life and death and the obsession with death. Just like Victor Frankenstein, you can see in Walter Neff this this attention to detail, this all-consuming fascination with creation and then the ultimate – and then also killing someone, like (laughs) – is, I don't think it's a stretch. Do you think it's a stretch to, to compare the two? I, I just see this, like, obsessive nature about both of them in, like, a really unhealthy way, both motivated by l- love,
1: question Yeah, mark? for sure. I think, especially for Walter Neff and Phyllis Dietrichson, there was sort of a passionate infatuation with the other. Um, Walter Neff said that he would never forget Phyllis Dietrichson at the beginning of the film when he first visited her. So he always knew that she would hold some sort of significance within his life. And they didn't really know each other, but it was more (laughs) of just the infatuation and sort of the lust of their relationship.
0: Yeah. Interesting how... These stories are so old, yet so timeless. Right now, we've got Walter Neff killed Mr. Dietrichson in his car and then impersonated him and then jumped off the train. So how do we get from a dead guy in a car to Walter Neff On the train tracks.
1: Yeah, so Phyllis and Walter had this spot picked out um, along the highway. So Phyllis Dietrichson drove her car along the service road and then parked it near the train tracks. And Walter Neff sort of fell off the train and jumped off the train when it was traveling at 15 miles an hour. So not too fast and switched roles with the past Mr. Dietrichson.
0: (laughs) They did it. They planned the perfect murder. What I find shocking that after they planned this perfect murder, he they get into the car and Phyllis Dietrichson, newly widowed, and Walter Neff are in the car. And Walter Neff is thinking, because we hear his internal monologue. I guess I shouldn't say it's his internal monologue. It's his confession. We're hearing his confession as the story goes on. It's super interesting. He's thinking how... Uh, pleasantly surprised he is that Phyllis Dietrichson is showing no emotion on the drive home. Like, wow, she's doing so well, controlling her emotions. She's not crying at all, which to me is like psychopath. And then also, gosh, masculinity is so toxic. Like, you should also be crying. If anyone should be crying, it should be you.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) And then also, the day after they commit the murder... Walter Neff kind of has a hunch that it's all going to go to crap. And you can hear him say like, and I knew it was going to fall apart right after I did it. The next day I just sort of knew it was going to fall apart. Yeah, And to me, that was definitely something that you would say in a confession. Like that is something you would say after the fact. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that was what he was actually thinking at the time.
1: Yeah, probably. I think at the time, he he did everything so by the book and by the plan that him and Miss Cedrickson had. He was nervous about this whole plan when it came to the insurance claim and the claims adjuster, Mr. Keys, who was Walter's boss, and they were con- colleagues and they were friends, I would probably say. And he knew that if Mr. Keys believed that this was an accidental death that he would be able to get away with it and that him and phyllis could possibly have their happily ever after but oh no it was doomed from the start yeah for sure (laughs) they did an autopsy of mr dietrichson and they first believed that it was suicide but the claims adjuster really began to get different ideas because it was this little double indemnity clause that they could not be. What are the chances? And he, he's constantly bringing up probability, probability. And it's a very slim chance that someone would pass due to a train accident. Sort of his gut and his instinct was really doubting that this was all accidental.
0: When do they start to think that Mr. Dietrichson did not accidentally die And did not kill himself, but was the victim of a murder. Yeah, so they brought in, I think
1: a day or two after the murder, um, brought in Mrs. Dietrichson to face Mr. Norton, who is the company's chief. And she puts on this incredible act of mourning. And it was later then said that perhaps she had something to do with this, that she maybe couldn't act alone within this murder.
0: How does the stepdaughter play a part in this story? Because I remember you said we mentioned earlier that she was in the room when he signed the accident insurance, just kind of haphazardly paying attention. Does she come back into the story?
1: She does. She plays a pretty important role in this story. She goes into Walter Neff's office and asks to speak with him. And she has this suspicion that her stepmother, Phyllis has something to do with this. Why does she think Phyllis had something to do with this? So the first Mrs. Dedrickson passed away six years before this murder. And it was Phyllis who was actually her nurse. So, (sighs) so she, remembers this one night her mother lying in their cabin it was just the three of them and the windows were wide open the sheets were all off of her and her mother had passed away from pneumonia two days later so she always had this suspicion when she was a child that phyllis was the cause of her mother's death and essentially murdered her as well
0: Man, are pigs the fact that mr dietrichson married his late wife's nurse It's super sketchy in and of itself, but I won't get into that. That's not important to the story, but it's important to me. So she thinks that Phyllis is responsible for both of her parents' murder.
1: She does. And she made it a point when she was giving her monologue in Walter Neff's office that she was just a child when her father was murdered, but she wanted to be as vocal as possible and fight against Phyllis, essentially, to sort of uncover the truth of her father's death.
0: Ah, uh, A little bit of girl power. We'd love to see it. <laughs> So, at this point, what do we have? We have this guy, Neff. This is his last name, Neff. Who falls in love with this woman named Phyllis Dietrichson. And together they decide to murder her husband. And then they murder her husband as a way to get insurance money. When the murder finally happens... The insurance company is sketched out by the situation and begins to call the accident into question, believing it to be murder. And they believe that Phyllis could be the murderer. And she is the murderer. We know that. The audience knows that. But Neff, his story is getting a little muddied up because nobody is suspecting him. Everyone is suspecting Phyllis, even her own stepdaughter. Dun, dun, dun. So how does Neff end up in the situation he is in the beginning, where he is shot giving a confession to Keys through, like, 1940s or 1930s voice memos? Like, how did we get from zero to 100?
1: Yeah, so at first... Uh, Walter Neff and Phyllis Dietrichson were kind of under the illusion that everything was going to go to plan, um, was going according to that plan. Uh, It wasn't until uh, Mr. Keyes brings in a witness who says that the man on the train that he saw was younger than Mr. Dietrichson himself. So at that point, Neff is warning Phyllis that pursuing this insurance claim in court risks exposing the murder. He's trying to inform her and keep her aware that the insurance company is really looking at her as the key suspect to this. Neff tries to convince Phyllis to lay low, and so the stepdaughter tells Neff that she's just dis- has discovered that her boyfriend, who is this other figure in the movie, Nino has been seeing Phyllis behind their backs. Uh, I know. It's it's on when I first saw it and saw that part, I sort of gave an audible like (gasps) moment. (laughs) (laughs) It just has so many twists and turns.
0: Um, I know. And let's talk a little bit about that boyfriend. We have we have Nino. Nino, what's his last name? Zacchetti. Nino Zaketti. Nino Zacchetti. And I want to point out that this entire movie is very much of its time. Um, They do use offensive language, not maliciously, but in a 1940s incredibly inappropriate way. And they do strive off of stereotypes in in a very 1940s way. And I think Nino Zacchetti is a great example of that because he – First of all, the name Nino Zacchetti, he is Italian and he is portrayed as this womanizing hothead, which feels like such an awful stereotype, but it's not the only time they use those stereotypes um, in in the movie. So that is Nino Zacchetti.
1: Absolutely. And... The insurance company is looking at different people who could have possibly worked with Phyllis. They eventually think that it was, in fact, Nino, who was the person that killed Mr. Dietrichsen and was kind of in cahoots with Phyllis.
0: They basically solved it. They only got one key thing wrong, and that it was not Nino Zacchetti who helped the murder. Right motivation, wrong guy.
1: So basically Walter Neff called Phyllis Dietrichson to sort of meet one final time. And he talks to her about Nino and saying that she never really loved him at all. And that this was all just a plan to kill her husband. She ends up shooting Walter Neff in the shoulder while he is in her home. And it. this scene is just classic film noir, like heavy, heavy shadowing and it just alludes to that style of cinematography here. At that point, Phyllis is basically saying that she never really loved him until that moment, till one of their final moments together. As she hugs him, Neff says, goodbye, baby, which is something that he always said to her was, baby, baby, um, and ends up shooting her twice, killing her.
0: Jerk. This guy's a psychopath.
1: Yeah. Neff waits for Nino to come and advises him not to enter the house. Neff is driving to his office, and that's when we return to the beginning of the film. Um, Keyes arrives unnoticed, and here's the truth. Neff then tells him that he plans on fleeing to Mexico, but he's too weak and collapses. Keyes lights Neff's cigarette. And they wait for the police and an ambulance to come to the office. And that's the
0: end of the movie. Gosh. The end. So, a few thoughts. First of all, when I was watching this movie, the thing that really stuck into my mind, and the note that I kept writing down over and over and over again was the male ego, right? Yeah. What I find fascinating, and I'm, it's kind of kind of go back into that descent of madness thing I mentioned earlier, is that Walter Neff is not told to quote unquote save Phyllis. He is not asked to murder her husband and he is not given the guarantee that they would run away and live their lives together. He just assumes this is so, and she just doesn't tell him otherwise. He just expects it. So I think that's so fascinating. He ends up planning this murder, going through with it, feeling intensely guilty about it. And I feel like all this time we're supposed to hate Phyllis. Like she's kind of framed as this bad guy. And I'm not going to say she didn't do anything wrong because she definitely plotted to kill her husband and possibly his first wife. But yeah. I will say that she never asked him to do this. He just did it. He just did it. Gosh. Another, yeah. another thing I want to mention is there's a point in this movie that's not really important to the plot at all, but made me think. There's this part where Mr. Keys, the man in which Walter neff gives him his confession to and is like kind of his his work colleague his boss that he respects sorry mr keys offers walter a job and walter refuses the job and this is what mr keys says in response he says i picked you for the job not because i think you're so darn smart but because i thought you were a shade less dumb than the rest of the outfit And my mind went to, wow, that is how men react when they get rejected. Like all of this whole movie to me just screamed toxic masculinity and the male ego and that and the repercussions of that. It just kind of sparked this need to learn more about it. So I was wondering if you caught any of that when you were watching.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Especially at the part that you just mentioned, I had a similar thought to that too. It's an interesting film, to say the least.
0: So I know you're really interested in the idea of femme fatale. What is a femme fatale? And is Phyllis a femme fatale?
1: So a femme fatale is considered an attractive, seductive woman, especially one who is likely to cause distress or disaster to a man who becomes involved with her. So is Phyllis considered a femme fatale?
0: I think she could be considered because she is an attractive and seductive woman and she does cause distress and disaster and possibly death. We don't even know. To A man who becomes obsessed with her.
1: Yeah. And I think they definitely, I think cinematically frame it that way, especially the first time that we're meeting her, she's on top of this balcony and there's sort of this lighting on her where we see her as this highlighted and spotlighted woman. And there are certain cinematic and photography-esque ways that they insinuate that she's a femme fatale.
0: Barbara Steinwick plays Phyllis. She's a huge movie star and um especially at that time and I think her playing this character is super important as well because Barbara Steinwick got her start in the in the thirties and she was in a lot of those pre-code films, those saucier films, so to speak. Her characters already had sort of a reputation. So I think it was easy for audiences to put her in this in this light where her persona translated really well onto this character.
1: For sure. And at that time, too, she was the highest paid actress in Hollywood. And when the movie came out, she had already two Oscar nominations in her name. Um, So she was a pretty, pretty big deal. And yet this role was a little bit intimidating to her, especially this dark role, as she considered it.
0: Tell us a little bit more about that. That was one of your fun facts. Why was she so scared to play Phyllis Dietrichson?
1: She was very nervous about playing a darker and more serious character like this. Um, She said it was extremely intimidating at first. And Wilder, the director, appealed to her competitive nature and asked, well, are you a mouse or an actress? And Sandwick wasn't about to let a remark like that drive her away from a part, so she took the role and earned her third Best Actress nomination and a place as one of cinema's greatest femme fatales in the process.
0: That's awesome. And unfortunately, she never won an Oscar, but I think the best actors tend not to. Yeah,
1: and especially, this is another fun fact I was reading about this, so her hair is actually a wig, and Everybody, a part of the production, as they were continuing the filming, hated the wig that she was wearing. They thought it felt so, it wasn't true to who Barbara Stanwyck was, and they wished that they had never put the wig in the film and just had her um, natural hair. They thought it didn't fit this role that she was supposed to be playing.
0: That is so funny, because her hair in this movie, to describe it to our listeners, it it's like shoulder-length waves, but it's got – I'm going to call them Mamie Eisenhower bangs mixed <laughs> with um, Molly McIntyre. So imagine the thickness of the American Girl doll Mary McIntyre's bangs with the shape of Mamie Eisenhower's bangs. This is These are deep cuts. So if you don't know what I'm referring to, just Google – right now barbara stanwick in double indemnity to just check out this look because it is specific it's a it's a look yeah it was a choice that they made yeah <laughs> for sure your other fun facts which is that nobody wanted to play walter neff what's that yeah. about
1: So after the project had weathered the production code and the labor screenwriting process, Billy Wilder hit even more snags when it came to casting. According to him, everyone turned down the role when he was looking for a leading man to play insurance salesman turned killer Walter Neff. Um, Including crime drama star at the time, Alan Ladd, and George Raft, who asked Wilder where the lapel in the film was, meaning the moment when Neff would flip over his lapel and reveal a badge. Wilder said no lapel moment was forthcoming, and so many people did turn down the role.
0: So a lapel moment would mean that, oh, Walter Neff wasn't actually the bad guy, he was a cop the whole time!
1: Exactly. He was not. Wilder then approached Fred McMurray. I can never say his name. McMurray, Fred McMurray, an actor then best known for Lighter Fair. And McMurray protested that he was not the kind of actor made for this who made little comedies, but Wilder eventually talked him into it. And McMurray ultimately looked back on Walter Neff as one of his greatest roles that he ever
0: played. And I would say it's probably one of his most known roles he ever played. What was he? He was in the Shaggy Dog and the Absent Minded Professor. But other than that, I know he was in a TV show too in the late sixties, early seventies. Again, yeah. deep cuts. I don't expect any of my listeners to know this. He was definitely not like a movie star. He was no Barbara Stanwyck.
1: No. But he eventually became very, very well-known because of this role. And it really showed his, his range as an actor by doing this.
0: Yeah. While we're well, on our, our fun facts, your third fun fact was that this was inspired by a real murder.
1: It was. So wh- how? Sure. So Double Indemnity was originally a novella. And it was by an author named James M. Kane who worked as a journalist in New York. And it was there that he actually stumbled upon the real-life murder case of Albert Snyder, who was killed in 1927 by his wife, Ruth Brown Snyder, and her lover, a corset salesman named Albert Judd Gray. And before committing the murder, Brown took out a $100,000 life insurance policy on her husband and tried to kill him several times, but was unsuccessful. She ultimately turned to this corset salesman, Gray, for help in the murder, and they were both ultimately executed for the murder in 1928.
0: Yikes. Um, Corset salesman, also interesting profession. I don't know if I personally would want to buy a corset from a corset salesman, but that might be my 21st century lens speaking. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. (laughs) I mean, I would personally... It's too constricted. Thank you. I don't want that. Thank you, though.
0: (laughs) So I think it's funny that she was unsuccessful in killing him several times. Yeah. I feel like if they would have included that she tried to kill him several times, this movie would have shifted from noir to comedy of errors. And I just would love to see that. (laughs) You know, could have been interesting, could have shaken it up a little bit. All right. So talked a lot about this story. We talked about a lot of our thoughts and our connections to it throughout the telling, but how can we directly relate this story to, to the now? Why is this story important now and how? can it be relevant to today's audience? I think
1: this story, um, it really set the stage for storytelling in a different way in film um, Mm -hmm. by having that dialogue. And I think all of us sort of have that inner dialogue and monologue constantly going. And it was sort of brought to this, cinematic place and it really created this sort of artistry that we see in films today and it was so impactful for the way that it was filmed artistically at the time and I still watching it just as a viewer seeing this beautiful moment of just shadows and light and I do black a lot of black and white photography and always try and play with contrast and I mean, this is the definition of that. It's really incredible to see that.
0: When you think of the genre noir, what do you think of?
1: I think of just these uh, very dark scenes, almost nighttime scenes with very little light in them. So I think of certain streets or sidewalks with a small little lamppost. Um, That's my initial thought when I think noir. Yeah. Um,
0: Me too. I think like 1940s trench coats. (laughs) Noir is actually not as antiquated as it may feel. It's not just movies from the 30s and 40s. There is a resurgence of noir, and they call it neo-noir. The example this particular website gives, which I'll link in our show notes, as I always do, says that neo-noir is to noir like grunge is to punk. Mm. Some modern noir films, if you're so inclined, a lot of them include Ryan Gosling, which I find interesting considering his starring role in the classic film La La Land. He's into the I've never seen it. I've never seen it. You've never seen La La Land? No, I haven't. Just you would love La La Land.
1: (laughs) No, I've never seen it. I've never seen it.
0: I know not everyone likes La La Land, but I'm I love La La Land. Anyway. Anyway, anyway. Ryan Gosling is really good at being in antiquated movie genres. So he's in God only forgives, 2013, Noir. He is in Oh, he's not in Sin City. But Sin City is another noir film. Brick, 2005 is considered noir. Pulp Fiction is considered noir, 1994.
1: You know, I've never seen that either. Me neither. And that's a movie I feel like I have to... So many people tell me I have to watch Pulp Fiction.
0: You know, I... Quentin Tarantino fans or people who consider themselves film bros are going to come at me. But I do not enjoy Quentin Tarantino or Gory Things. I don't think that's... I think they're gross. And I don't enjoy watching them. Like, I don't care if they're technically good. I don't want to watch it. I don't want to watch Gory Things. Give me La La Land. I prefer that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Dark Knight is considered a neo-noir film. I have seen that. Dark Knight 2008. Heath Ledger's Joker is probably what that film is best known for. And, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 1988, is considered... Are you serious? It is considered toon noir. That's so funny. I will tell you why. Again, this is from StudioBinder.com. Take my sources with a grain of salt, but I find it interesting. They say... Thrusting a grizzled detective into the manic world of Toontown enhances both sides of the coin. In 23 entries into this list, I'm aware of how played out the seedy underbelly of Los Angeles feels, but the seedy underbelly world of a cartoon world where violence is perpetrated with oversized mallets and slapstick? That's so much fun you forget it's satire. If the uncompromising cynicism of the genre has made you weary, check this one out. And see if you can stay half as pouty as Eddie Valiant. There you go. Again, that is from StudioBinder.com. Links in the show notes. So yeah, some modern noir for you, fans. Enjoy them.
1: (laughs) How do you think it's relevant today?
0: How do I I think it's relevant today? I think it's relevant today because I think that we, as a group, as a society at the moment our national consciousness is going through darker content or very bright and light content. I, I, I think there's very little gray area. And I think this is relevant because it lies so much in the gray. I think especially Double Indemnity, most of the movie is in gray area. You can't really empathize or sympathize with any of the leads, because they're all inherently flawed people. And we see them at their best, and we see them at their worst. And we want to like them, but we know we can't. So I think that is a really interesting thing to digest right now in a world where everything feels so black and white, and where we put people in these very specific boxes to remember that characters as people are incredibly complex and everyone is the protagonist of their own story. And I think that Double Indemnity does a brilliant job of exploiting the idea that everyone is the protagonist of their own story. Well said. Thank you. (laughs) How does this story make you feel on the edge? So
1: the first time that I saw this, I remember... Just gasping and being like, giving audible like oh, and ah's and I think cinematically it really makes you feel on the edge and it takes that sort of approach of thriller to a different place um, through the use of cinematography, not only because of the storyline but also because of the music score. Oh yeah, and because of I think th- the music score for this is absolutely incredible and it really heightens certain moments. And it really adds to this noir uh, film. Yeah. Um,
0: I so agree. I so agree.
1: And this is a little bit more of why I think it's sort of on the edge. It's obviously not the typical, like, scary thing, um, like some other stories, and not in that sense. But the way that they were able to create this psycho thriller at the time through shadowing and through angles and sort of these moments really add to it and add to that on edge feeling there's just a certain moodiness and it's just a combination of murder seduction mystery that really push it to different limits and i think also the fact that it's based off of and inspired by a real murder makes it feel a little bit more on the edge
0: too i agree i agree um Thank you for quoting Corbin Blue and push it to the limit. I appreciate that. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, Jess, Jesse G, Jess Gianna. That's me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Before we leave do you have any suggestions on where our listeners can learn more about double indemnity or noir film or art
1: I can put it in the show notes if you'll let me put some things in there everything goes in the show notes
0: yeah
1: (laughs) but I think really watching it and sort of gathering your own thoughts and opinions on the film um, and seeing it for yourself I know we're talking about it in these terms and it's much easier to see it versus speaking about it and being able to sort of witness it yourself. Um, but I
0: agree. Yeah. I'll also link some articles about um, looking at the women of femme fatale and Barbara Stanwyck related to that um, and kind of connecting the psychology of these noir films and also, how noir films impact cinema today. So, all these fancy articles I'll link in the show notes, too, for you. We love to do that. Sucker for a good article. Oh, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Chicago style, always.
0: Always. Always. Except <laughs> always. for this one. I'll just give you the links. I won't, I won't confuse okay. my listeners with Chicago style. <laughs> 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 Could you imagine if I did that? Oh, my gosh.
1: Um, <laughs> no MLA. No Chicago. Just
0: next level nerd formatting anyway um uh thank you so much for coming on if because you are so talented and you have so many projects you're working on right now if people want to support you and your art and your instagrams how can they find you
1: Sure. Oh, stop. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm really bad at shameless plugging like this. Um, I have an Etsy shop that I run called Obscura Print Shop based out of New York. Um, I do a mixture of mixed media works and photography, and I mostly do 35 millimeter shots in that, including the mixed media works. So feel free to check it out. And Uh, I, 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 I'm really bad at self-promoting like this. (laughs)
0: Hey, hey, you're not, Um, you're not, I am forcing you to, so no shame.
1: Feel free to check out my work and it'd be great to collaborate and work with you, um, if there's a certain vision that you have or if you want to make your vision into a reality.
0: Thank you so much. Everyone should, um, Absolutely support Jess and all of our featured artists on the podcast. Uh, we were so lucky that we were able to work with so many talented, talented people from all over. So thank you Jess for that. And thank you for coming on the pod and um, thank you for talking to me because you're great.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> and, and if you want to contact me, uh, you can't do that. If you feel so inclined at just the underscore Italian. Anyway, everyone enjoy your day. Jess, enjoy your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. And I'll uh, see y'all next time. Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast was produced by Talia Smith and Emily Joba. You can buy us a coffee to support this podcast at buymeacoffee.com onceuponatimepc our guest today was Jess Gianna, and our story was Double Indemnity. Our featured artist this week was also Jess Gianna. You can check out her work on Instagram and in our show notes. Music is Photos of Murder by John Bartman. Our Instagram is at A Storytelling Podcast, and our email is A Storytelling Podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook too. You can listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, or wherever you're listening. Links to all of our resources are in the show notes and on our website. We only have one episode left of the season. Stay tuned. The end.